Welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. Nothing says Christmas to me quite like a really intense scene from a Hollywood Western. Am I right? Uh, I, I want to begin my message today with an apology. I know it's the Christmas season and everyone's feeling festive and you probably came wanting an uplifting and joy-producing sermon Come back next week if that's what you're looking for. Uh, Eli was talking about it in the announcements, but it's kind of confusing, so I'm going to hit it again. Next weekend, the Hope Kids are going to be singing at the worship center services, just a, a couple of songs, kind of like in the spot where we used to do an offering song. Remember that? Anyway, they'll be here Saturday at 5, Sunday at 9, 15, and 11. If kids scare you, we've got two services in the reservoir at 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock Sunday morning where the kids will not be singing. It'll still be very uh, joy-filled. The weekend after that is going to be the uh, cantata, the adult praise choir, again, in the worship center services, and then the reservoir services just be a straightforward, regular worship service. Then we're going to have, over the course of four days, 10 Christmas Eve services. So if you're looking for joy, if you're looking for uplifting and hope, the next three weeks we're just going to dump it all on you. But today, uh, anyway, um, when I watch that scene from Dances with Wolves, First of all, I thank God that I was not born in the 1700s or the 1800s. I would not have been a good pioneer. I would not have fared well on the Oregon Trail. I do love the Oregon Trail. I, I went to seminary in Portland, Oregon. Our first two kids were born when we were living in Oregon. And so over those years, we traveled the long, long drive from Des Moines to Portland more than a handful of times. It's long, but I loved it because of the countryside. I mean, just incredible scenery like what you're seeing on the screen. Uh, this is an image of Circling Raven Golf Club. And Circling Raven Golf Club is basically on the border of Washington and Idaho. It's about 30 miles southeast of Spokane, Washington, uh, 30 miles southwest of uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And Circling Raven Golf Club, this beautiful piece of country, is named after a man. Do you want to guess what the name of the man is? You guys are much more awake than the 8 o'clock service. They were clueless. Circling Raven is the name of the man. And to be more precise, he was a chief. Chief Circling Raven of an indigenous tribe that lived in this area in the 1700s. And if this sort of thing is interesting to you, uh, you can spend a lot of time online and it will lead you to some uh, source material, some books that talk about the life and, and in particular this story from Chief Circling Raven that I want to share with you. One of the books is called Beneath These Mountains. Another is called The Saga of the Kirtaline Indians. Another one is called Raven Song. In each of those three books, they tell pieces of this story uh, that I want to share with you. So the year was 1740. 1740, more than 60 years before the Louisiana Purchase, more than 60 years before Lewis and Clark did their expedition to the Pacific Northwest, and Chief Circling Raven was leading his tribe on a buffalo hunt. At one point in the buffalo hunt, they end up in a place where they are trapped and they are surrounded by their enemies. It happens to be the night of the winter solstice. 
And so that night, Chief Circling Raven gets a vision. And in his vision, he sees the birth many, many, many years ago of a child, a boy, who would be the savior of all the peoples on the earth. The vision keeps going. That boy grows up into a man, and he is killed by people who do not believe he is the savior of all peoples on earth. The vision keeps going, and in Circling Raven's vision, he is told one day emissaries of the savior are going to come to you and to your tribe. One day, emissaries of the Savior are going to come to you and your tribe. And this is the way uh, it gets written about. They were dressed in black robes, these emissaries of the Savior, bringing the true words of hope for all peoples. They will come and they will teach us the ways of friendship with those who follow. Circling Raven wakes up. He shares this vision with his tribe. Somehow they escaped their enemies, and for uh, every year after that, at the winter solstice, they have a celebration. They celebrate the birth of this baby whose name they do not know, this Savior. Uh, they share gifts with one another. They sing songs. And Circling Raven says to his tribe, because these emissaries of the Savior are going to teach us about friendship, let's stop shedding blood. Let's stop shedding the blood of our enemies. Let's stop shedding the blood of our uh, people in our tribe. And he spent the last 40 years of his life waiting for, watching for the black robes to come. They never came. He died in the year 1780. His son, Twisted Earth, becomes the new chief. And Twisted Earth keeps all these traditions going around this winter celebration. And he keeps passing down, remember this vision of my father. We're watching and we're waiting for the black robes. And finally they come in the year 1842. A Jesuit priest by the name of Father de Smith shows up in this tribe. And when Twisted Earth, the son of Circling Raven, sees Father de Smith, he says, you're the fulfillment of my father's prophecy. Tell us about this baby who's born the savior of all peoples. And so Father DeSmit preaches the gospel, tells them about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then baptizes the entire tribe. He writes back to headquarters, church headquarters in St. Louis. He says, nowhere have I seen such unmistakable proof of true conversion. I find stories like this fascinating. Uh, a lot of different levels. We could talk about a lot of things. I mean, the friendship piece of that is kind of questionable when the way that uh, the natives get treated. But for me, one of the things that happens when I see a story like this, one of the questions or objections that a lot of people have that I talk to when it comes to faith, it's like, well, what about people who live in a part of the world where they've never heard about Jesus? What about people who live in places where they don't have Bibles, they've never heard the story of Jesus? What does that mean for their eternity? Are they doomed? Are they predestined to an eternity apart from God? And for me, stories like this are a reminder, an important reminder, that God is a whole lot bigger than we typically allow God to be. God's a whole lot bigger, and God's ways are higher than our ways, and God is always at work, always at work making a way where there seems to be no way. Chief Circling Raven, fascinating to me. I, I think another title you could give him is Prophet Circling Raven. The job description of a prophet is to get a message from the Lord and then share that message with the people. And so that's what Circling Raven does. Next year, our theme at Hope is going to be the whole Holy Bible in a year. A big percentage of what we're going to read in, as we read through the whole Holy Bible are, it's the prophetic literature of Scripture. 
great people of faith who get a message from God, a vision from God, and then they share that message with God's people so that faith can grow, so that faith can be strengthened. And so today, I just want to talk a little bit about the messages of the prophets, particularly as it relates to this baby who is born the Savior of the world. Our Bible reading comes from Micah chapter 5. This is one of the places uh, where we see the prophecy about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. I want to go back to the very beginning of Micah. Uh, Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Micah. The visions he saw concerned both Samaria and Jerusalem. So part of what happens, like the first thing that God does when God is giving a message to prophets, God starts to point out, here is what has gone wrong. And so part of what we see at the very beginning of Micah's prophecy, what has gone wrong in Micah's day is headquartered in these two cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. You skip down to verse 5, and it says, who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital city. Remember, at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, there's been a civil war, and the nation is now divided, and there's the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The capital city of Judah is Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. And so the northern kingdom, they don't want to go into their enemy territory to worship, so they create a new a capital city, they call it Samaria, and they build a new temple. And at that temple in Samaria, they start to worship false gods. And part of what ends up happening is their idolatry, their worship of false gods spreads, and pretty soon, same thing is happening in Jerusalem. So early on in Micah's prophecy, we're told, here's the problem. The problem is idolatry, but notice where it's headquartered. It's headquartered in the seats of power, the capital cities. Samaria, and Jerusalem. As we keep reading through Micah's prophecy, we get to Micah chapter 2. In my Bible, and this is why it's good for you to bring your Bible with you, because maybe your Bible has something different. But in my Bible, or you could say, yeah, Scott's just making stuff up, but you look at your Bible. In my Bible, it has a subtitle at the beginning of chapter 2. And so this isn't scripture, this is just what the editors put there to tell us, here's what we're going to be reading about. My subtitle says, Judgment Against Wealthy Oppressors. Judgment Against Wealthy Oppressors. What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. What I want you to see really early on in Micah's prophecy, he's pointing to the use of power, or it might be more accurate to say the abuse of power, and that's what's going wrong. What are these wealthy oppressors doing with the power they have that makes God want to cast judgment on them? Verse 2 says this. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. Then in my Bible, off to the right-hand side there, right in between verse 1 and 2, it says Isaiah 32, verse 7, which is a way of saying something similar is happening in Isaiah's day. One of the other prophets of the Old Testament is Isaiah. Isaiah 32, I'll read verses 6 and 7. They deprive the hungry of food. 
They give no water to the thirsty. The smooth tricks of scoundrels are evil. They plot crooked schemes. They lie to convict the poor, even when the cause of the poor is just. And so part of what we're seeing, whether it's Isaiah in his day or whether it's uh, Micah in his day, there are powerful people who are using their power in harmful ways. One of my favorite classes in seminary was a class where we spent the whole semester studying the Old Testament prophet Amos. Amos doesn't get a whole lot of airtime uh, in American churches, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. But Amos is fascinating. And the, the message that God gives to Amos and, and the way that God shapes this message, it's super creative. So God basically says to Amos, I want you to gather the people around, and then I want them to just kind of envision this, their homeland. We got Israel and Judah, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And then God starts saying this, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. The people of Damascus have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. The people of Damascus. So we're looking at the, the neighboring countries, the neighboring tribes around Israel and Judah, and it would be very accurate to say these neighbors of Israel and Judah are their enemies. When, when you read through the Old Testament, Israel and Judah are often at war against the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the people of Syria often these battles. And so God is saying, your enemies are bad. They're sinning, they keep on sinning, and I'm not going to let their sin go unpunished. Same thing for Gaza. The same thing for Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. And as you read through this opening chapter, it's very formulaic. You can imagine that the people of Israel and Judah are like, yes, God sees those people for who they are. God, God doesn't like the way they are living and the way they're at. God sees their wickedness, their evil ways, their sin, and God is going to give them what they deserve. You can almost hear them cheering God on. And you keep reading. Who's God going to get next? It's you, Israel. It's you, Judah. You keep sinning and sinning and sinning again, and I'm not going to let your sin go unpunished. When we engage faithfully with the prophetic scriptures in the Bible, one of the things that happens is they force us to stop pointing our fingers at those people. The prophetic scriptures cause us to stop pointing out everything that's wrong with our neighbors or our enemies. And instead, a faithful reading of the prophetic scriptures always brings it really close to home. What is going wrong? What has gone wrong in my life, in my heart. It's like God is holding up a mirror and causing people to see things that they don't want to believe are true about themselves. In the recovery world, we've got 12-step programs, right? You know what the fourth step of the 12 steps is? To make a searching and fearless moral inventory. This is what God is doing through the prophets. He's helping the people of God, the people of Israel and Judah, make a searching and fearless moral inventory of individual lives, yes, also, but also of community life. And so here's what God sees. I'll start reading Amos chapter 2, kind of halfway through verse 6. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. 
Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. In those three verses, we see God saying, I get upset when I see people abusing power uh, when it comes to the economy. When you're selling human beings for profit, that's an abuse of power. God says, I get upset at uh, a sexual abuse of power. I get upset at religious abuse of power. I, I think maybe the way you could kind of summarize uh, this message of God that we see when we look at the prophets is God gets upset. God is not pleased when there are people who have power, the power to do good, and instead they use their power to harm others, to mistreat others. They use their power in evil ways. For several years, um, people have been asking me, hey, Scott, are you watching the TV show Yellowstone? And I kept saying, no, I'm not watching it. Uh, but a lot of people kept asking and asking. So finally, last spring, my wife Wendy and I started watching Yellowstone, and we absolutely loved it. It's a horrible show, and, <laughs> and we love it. I mean, it is vulgar and coarse and so unbelievably violent and awful. It's like you're reading the Bible when you, when you watch Yellowstone. And then there'll be a scene that's just like the sweetest scene you ever want to see, especially if you grew up in a small town, rural Iowa. You're like, oh, it's so great. Um, I want to show you a scene from Yellowstone. It centers on the Dutton family. And one of the sons is named Casey. He's married to a Native American woman. She uh, and Casey live on the reservation. And she is a history professor at one of the local colleges, a history professor. So this scene, she's getting ready to give her history lecture and one of the students is being highly inappropriate, so she has to teach a lesson on power. Take a look. What's your name? Trent. Can you tell me the definition of power, Trent? Hmm? It's the ability to direct or influence another's behavior or course of events. That's what I have. I can remove you from this class and fail you, or I can send you before the dean for violating the student code of conduct. These are all things that can alter the course of your life. That's power. And you don't have any. <laughs> when Christopher Columbus first came in contact with Native Americans, it was the Arawak people in the Bahamas. I'll read to you from Columbus's journal. They willingly traded us everything they owned. They do not bear arms and do not know them, for I showed them a sword. They took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They will make fine slaves. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. You ever feel like that, Trent? You ever feel like making someone do what you want, whether they want to or not? It's a very European mentality, stemming from the oppressive political and religious structures of the Renaissance. Kings and priests with absolute power ruling masses who have none. That was the mentality of the men who discovered America. And it's the mentality our society struggles with today. 
What you know of history is a dominant culture's justification for its actions. And I don't teach that. I'll teach you what happened. To my people and to yours. Because we're all the descendants of the subjugated. Every one of us. Would you sing this with me? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lowly exile. Till the Son of God appear, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to church history professor would always remind us when we look back at history you do not get to say if I had been alive then I would have done things differently because it was a completely different time a completely different cultural context you don't know how you would have acted you don't know what you would have done so it's not really a helpful mindset to say when we look back and see things we don't like I would have done things differently instead a helpful mindset might be to look at history what lessons can we draw? What lessons can we learn? And then say, how can I apply these lessons today in my life, in my circles, in my time? The prophets, the prophets force us to ask some challenging questions, all dealing with power. Whatever power that I have, how am I using that power? Am I using it to help people? Or am I using it to harm, to hurt, to mistreat? When I have the power to act, when I have the power to change things, do I ever find myself just becoming a bystander? When we pray the Lutheran prayer of confession, which we do around here very rarely, um, one of the things we pray in that prayer is, Lord, I have sinned 
against you by what I have done, but also by what I have left undone. First things the prophets do through God is they point out, here's what's gone wrong. The second thing the prophets do is they start to describe, here's how things that have gone wrong have, can be made right. And true prophets, biblical prophets, always point us to the Messiah as the one who has the power to make things right. Uh, there's a modern-day prophet, fairly modern-day anyway, Martin Luther King Jr., really good at pointing out what has gone wrong in our culture, in our society, in the 50s and in the 60s as he's leading the civil rights movement. He would often talk about uh, the triple giants of injustice. This is what's gone wrong, he would say. And it was all about this abuse of power. So it was racial injustice, economic injustice, and the abuse of military power. He said, this is what has gone wrong. But the reason I think Martin Luther King Jr. has endured is because not only did he point out what was wrong, he also had a dream. He also had a vision about what does it look like when things get made right. And we don't give a whole lot of airtime to Amos in our American churches, but Martin Luther King Jr. sure did. He loved Amos. He would quote from Amos almost every time he spoke, particularly Amos 5, verse 24, which is on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. How do we create a world? This is his dream, his vision. It comes right from the pages of Scripture. How do we create a more just and a more righteous world? And he would often reference a story that Jesus told, the story of the Good Samaritan. Sometimes he would do this in the sermons that he's preaching at his Baptist church. Sometimes he would do this as he's in front of uh, you know, workers and uh, leading a strike or something like that. He would reference the story of the Good Samaritan. And remember that story? There's a man who's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and along the way, he gets mugged, robbed, beaten, left for dead. Jesus tells a story, a couple of really faithful religious people walk by, uh, a temple assistant and a priest, and they stay as far away from this beaten man as they can, and they just keep on walking by. They do not offer any help. And then Jesus says a third person walks by. You remember what Jesus calls this third person? A despised Samaritan. We've been talking about Samaritans today, you remember? Micah's prophecy is the judgment of God against Samaria and Jerusalem. Remember, it was in Samaria. The Samaritans are the ones who built a fake temple, started worshiping fake gods, and anytime you worship fake gods, real people get mistreated. And so that's part of the reason why Samaritans were despised. Jesus calls them despised Samaritans. But what does this guy do? He shows compassion. He stops, he bandages the man's wounds, he takes him to an inn, pays the innkeeper to care for the man until his wounds have been healed. Just compassion. And Martin Luther King Jr., as he would tell that story, I, I didn't know this until like four or five years ago. Martin Luther King Jr. would say, we often stop short of the fullness of what Jesus is trying to get at in this story. Martin Luther King Jr. would say, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar, True compassion understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. If, if we're, he's like, what would it look like for us to use our power to build a, build a more just, a more righteous world so that people don't get beat up and left for dead alongside the road? 
the season of Advent at Hope, we always do an Advent mission project. And this year, the mission project is Homes of Hope. We're partnering with Youth with a Mission to build homes in Tijuana, Mexico for people who have no homes. You can pray for this project to be successful. You can give money for this project to be successful. You can go on a trip and help build those homes. All really, really good things to do. And Martin Luther King Jr. would ask us, some of you are going to want to do even more than that. Some of you have the power to think about and, and create a world where fewer and fewer people all the time are homeless, have nowhere to lay their head. The other thing we're doing here at Hope Anchoring, I'm so proud of you, Hope. Uh, last weekend, we were telling you about this project, the Angel Tree Project, and uh, partnering with our, our mission partner, Prison Fellowship. And Eli said in the announcements, you adopted all of the families that we have, 112 families, well over 200 kids who are going to be having a real joy-filled Christmas this year because this congregation is showing compassion on them. It's awesome. And then on the 17th, we're having a party, and some of you are going to come to that party and help uh, celebrate with those families and get to know them a little bit relationally. That will be awesome. And some of you are going to be challenged by God to think, huh, how's the justice system in our country going these days? Is there anything about our justice system that could be improved? And some of you are going to want to look at that and you'll notice, oh, the numbers of incarcerated people keep going up and up and up and up. Maybe a more just and a more righteous world would show the numbers of incarcerated people actually going down as God's people are doing the kinds of things that God calls us to do. The prophets point out what is wrong then they dare us to dream along with God. How do we make things right? I think the third thing the prophets always do, the prophets challenge us to change the way we think. The prophets, if we engage with them faithfully, they will challenge us to change the way we think. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, Paul writes. When we look at the prophets, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves what kind of power are they saying this Messiah, this Savior, is going to have? And what is the Savior going to do with that power? What kind of world does the Savior dream of? And how is the Savior empowering his followers to partner with the Savior in creating that kind of world? So what I'd like to do, I'd like us to just read some of the Old Testament prophets and how they point us to Jesus. Some of these verses are going to be familiar to you. Some of them might not be. Read this out loud with me. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah says a lot about this, so we'll just keep reading in Isaiah. Read it with me. He will not shout or raise his voice in public, he will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wrong. Keep going. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released, prisoners will be freed. How's this going to happen? How's the Savior going to bring this about? Next verse, Zechariah says, It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. One final verse, this is from our Bible reading, Micah 5.5, 5. read this with me. 
and he will be the source of peace. When we engage faithfully with the Old Testament prophets, the questions to ask ourselves, what kind of power do the prophets say the Savior has? What's the Savior's dream for this world? And how does the Savior empower his followers to bring that dream into reality? Many, many times when we read through the Old Testament prophets, we misunderstand the kind of power our Savior has. Think about it. In Jesus' day, they expected that the Messiah was going to take out the Romans. That their oppressors were going to be defeated by this king of kings. And Jesus says, yeah, I've got a plan for that. But it's not the same kind of plan that you think I'm going to carry out. I've got a different way. I've got a better way. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And, and everyone in Jesus' day, most everyone, was surprised by this. It's not what they expected. But if they had been faithfully reading the Old Testament scriptures, they would not have been surprised. They would have been like, of course, this is what the Savior is going to do. Remember what Jesus says. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. I want to read to you how Micah's uh, prophecy ends. Uh, Micah chapter 7. Maybe I'll get there. Here it is. I'll start in verse 18. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love. How does God do that? How does the Savior trample our sins under his feet. Instead of punishing us like we deserve, he dies for us. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down their life for their friends. And remember, at the end of his life, after the end of his time with his disciples, he says to them, I no longer call you servants, now you are my friends. If you do what I command, love God and love your neighbor." the beginning of this movie, Dances with Wolves, the white soldier and the Sioux warrior fear each other. They are enemies. They, they are willing to take each other's life if that's what they need to do to survive. And part of the reason I love this movie is because instead of doing that, they figure out how to connect. They humble themselves enough to listen to each other, to learn from each other, and ultimately, it leads to, this is what it looks like to love one another. Take a look.
Can you see that I am your friend? Can you see that you will always be my friend? Have you ever heard the Savior's voice say that to you? The Savior of this world who turns everything that's gone wrong right through the power of his love. 